<laughs> All right. Welcome to another episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And we want to give a big welcome back to William Irwin. He's a professor of philosophy at King's College in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, and is best known for originating the philosophy and popular culture book genre with Seinfeld and Philosophy, a book about everything and nothing in 1999, and The Simpsons and Philosophy, The Doe of Homer in 2001. Uh, William's latest books are Little Siddhartha and God is a Question, Not an Answer. And his newest book out now is called Both And. Welcome, William. Thanks for having me, Alan. Leon, it's a pleasure always to talk with you guys. Yeah, and we have to also mention this. So Bill Irwin was our first ever podcast guest in May of 2019, yeah. which is like so crazy to even think about. You know, we kind of look at the whatever I would I don't know, I was gonna say studio. I don't know if this is a studio, but like you know, we kind of look at the background and I'm like, wow, man, I remember when we sat here with the what? yeah, coming from no uh no camera or really bad camera equipment, yeah, no, no mics like these, right? No lighting. Yeah, we had an echo that nobody could freaking resolve. And then having errors and technical difficulties yeah. and all that. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah so, nice. uh, Bill, you knew that, right? You were our first guest. I, now that you say it, it, yeah. it, it rings true. Uh, I was also the first guest on someone else's podcast that never took off. So <laughs> I, can't, I can't take any credit for it. You guys have that's been great. And the profile of your guests has gone up since we started. And I'm, I'm glad that you'll have me back. So <laughs> good job. Thank you. Yeah. And it's like super nostalgic to have you back, man. It's like, I remember the first time we didn't even see each other because of the way our camera equipment was set up. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So poetry and philosophy, right? So kind of in terms of, I guess the question here would be when you think of philosophy and when you think about poetry, they seem to be, you know, pretty antithetical to, to one another, right? You would think of them as kind of like dichotomous or in a sort of state of dichotomous existence. So, all right, tell us, Bill, tell us about your background and how do you, how you became interested in poetry. Yeah. So, so it is kind of an ancient rivalry and uh, they don't always get along, but I think that's unfortunate. Uh, like uh, lots of uh, things and sides that don't get along, they, they really should. And uh, I, I might have gotten interested in philosophy even through poetry because I, I was interested in poetry back in high school when I was going through my, uh, my existential crisis. And uh, well, that's continued my existential <laughs> crisis, but it was, it was pretty bad at that time. Uh, and uh, so I was looking for ideas and, uh, and worldviews and, and literature and, and poetry were, were particularly good at exposing me uh, to those. And I sort of maybe found my way to philosophy and ideas from poetry. And I, I, I tried my hand at writing some poetry back in high school, as, as lots of people do, mostly on the pages of, uh, of notebooks and sharing it with uh, a guidance counselor who was uh, very helpful uh, to me, as I know, uh, you know, Leon in particular is helpful to so many people uh, that, that he deals with. And I wonder if, uh, if any of them write uh, poetry and show you poetry, Leon, I know that was therapeutic <laughs> yeah. uh, for me, even if it wasn't very good poetry. Uh, and I, I always wanted to do it, uh, but I, I didn't write poetry that looked anything like what you read in the textbooks. And uh, uh, I don't know, I, I, in, in college, uh, I found my way to philosophy and I'd say I, I flirted with psychology and married philosophy. Yeah. And uh, it's been uh, pretty good since, uh, but I've always had an itch to get back to, uh, to writing poetry. And I was 
fortunate to have a, a sabbatical that roughly coincided with the pandemic. And I didn't have a big philosophical project that I, that I was trying to get to. And so I thought I'm, I'm going to treat myself and, uh, and, and try my hand at writing poetry. And I'll, I'll try my hand at writing poetry that's philosophical. And uh, that, that's what I've, uh, I've done one way or another, whether it's, uh, whether it's good or successful is, uh, is another me matter, but uh, uh, that, that was my goal, that poetry and philosophy don't need to be these, these separate things. And so the, the title of the, of the book is, is both and, and uh, that plays on the idea that uh, uh, what, what I've written is both philosophy and poetry, and, and it gives me a nice out. If uh, you think it's bad poetry, I can say it's good philosophy. <laughs> if you think it's bad philosophy, I can say, well, it's good poetry. Uh, maybe it's neither nor, uh, but I like to think that it's, uh, that it's both and. So that, that's kind of how I got here. Yeah. Actually, I'll be honest, uh, having read the book recently, uh, certain stanzas stood out to me. And definitely, like, uh, for example, I, I, here I have the book right here. And let's see. I just had it here. Um, so for example, there's a, there's a section called uh, on success. Oh, okay. And yeah, and then there's this part about, so this one little stanza here, um, the moment, <laughs> clock can't tell you what time it is, right? Like, for example, even that, that in itself is, is very philosophical, right? Because the moment, uh, the now, right? It's, it's not something that you, it, something external can teach you. It's something that you have to sort of, uh, uh, feel and, right. and be with right uh there was that or uh this other little stanza here that got me uh truth hunt find where people are right even when they're wrong so <laughs> sort of like mm -hmm. like seeking first to understand right. then to be understood like certain things like that or and i'll just say one more because I, I know sure. i could just you can read uh, the book <laughs> yeah, <all right. laughs> so um habits hammer final strike Sunder stone, lightning gone, thunder alone. Like that hit me. Like, <laughs> it, it, it also sounds epic. It yeah, just yeah. sounds cool to read. And, and, and I get it. Like it's, um, it's something you, you keep doing. There's a consistency to uh, habit and right. that's how it correlates or goes with success. And right. like things like that, like uh, struck a chord in me yeah. while reading. Yeah, so. yeah, and you um, know, I'm so I, glad to, to hear that. I mean, it, 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 it's validating, uh, you know, you, you write poetry more alone than you do most things. Uh, I mean, like you guys doing uh, this podcast as a team, lots of what I do uh, is as part of a team. Uh, and uh, the, the way I was looking at it as I was, uh, was writing it is uh, I'm, I'm not a photographer and maybe I'm wrong about the way the photographers work. Uh, but I get the impression they take lots and lots of photographs uh, and uh, not all of them are ones that, uh, that hit the mark and, and do what they want them to do. Uh, but if, if you get some, something out of some of them, that's pretty good. So I, I, my, my idea was I don't have to have uh, a huge success uh, rate with, with these poems. They're all very short. Uh, as Alan demonstrated in, uh, in reading them. And uh, if it doesn't strike you, or if you don't like it, you didn't spend a lot of time on it. You move on to the next one. Uh, and uh, you know, if, if out of a short book of poetry, uh, 
you come away with, with a couple of uh, images and ideas and maybe even turns a phrase that stick with you, uh, then to me that, that, that's a success. So it, it's, it's really cool to, to hear Alan uh, latch on to, to some of those. Uh, th those were some, some favorites of mine as well. And, mm -hmm. and the, the images come from, from other things, right? I mean, that idea uh, of the of habits hammer, right? Uh, uh, and the idea that uh, sometimes uh, you have to do something repeatedly and you feel like you're getting absolutely nowhere with it. Uh, and then the, the final strike uh, that actually breaks the stone, right? And that, that gets you through to whatever it is that you were trying to achieve with the development of, of the habit. You, you, know, you don't see any of that work. You don't see it you know, getting anywhere when you're striking a stone repeatedly. Uh, but uh, all of that work really paid off in, in that one final strike. It wasn't that one final strike that broke the rock. It was everything that you did uh, leading up to it and uh, that I, I'm, I'm glad too that you latched in on the, the one about the the moment right uh because it sort of fits with the the, the yeah. title of your podcast sees the <laughs> moment right uh, yeah. and and the, it, what the moment is is not something that a clock can tell you right it can tell you yeah. clock time uh but there has to be an intuitive feel that you develop for for when uh is the right time uh, to move on a certain idea or project or, or whatever it may be. And, and that's not uh, the, uh, the clock time. And, and as you said, uh, as well, uh, even what a moment is, is more of a philosophical question uh, than, uh, than it is something that, uh, that a clock tells us. So right. thank and, you. <laughs> of course. Oh, thank you. No, this, because uh, reading stuff like this that resonates with you and makes you uh, think it's it's nice not a lot of um, not a lot of uh, books or I mean books do do this but I don't know it's it's strange I just found myself thinking more as especially in the beginning of the book the first section it's on uh, concepts in philosophy or specific philosophers like for example um, I'm I saw things about uh, Plato and Socrates in there uh, different standards in there and sort of um, a poem or a stanza about kind of like what they spoke about and a, a, like a different spin on what they spoke about in a in a poem format, which is interesting. It starts to make you think of different things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just even to get into it a little bit, uh, to take it into like an academic, uh, I guess I don't know but to put it into an academic framework. What's so interesting is that when we think about philosophy, we always have like this sort of argument this like perpetual struggle or battle between continental philosophy and analytic philosophy. Mm. So you'd have like the continental philosophers who are more into aphorisms, right? They're very poetic. Like mm. let's say Nietzsche, right? Uh, he'll have like these kind of sayings that when you hear them, right, they're striking, right? Just like with the poetry for you. And you'll think of them and you'll think, wow, man, like this is something I could carry with me, right? You know, if I'm having a difficult time, I could think of some sort of like truism or aphorism. Um, but then, you know, when you go into analytical philosophy, you have like these really big volumes, right? Sort of like, because they're so precise and they're looking for truths and they're not only just looking for truths like let's say you know there's definitely some truths in like Nietzsche's aphorisms but the point is they're looking for precise truths and they're looking for nuance right mm -hmm. obviously something we cover on this show so what's so interesting and I mean I want to hear about it also from your perspective too Alan but sure. you know kind of obviously going back to Bill is that why do you think that this kind of like struggle developed like why can't we have both like why so why can't we have your poetry and these aphorisms right that kind of are striking and that you can carry with you on a day-to-day -day and that you can kind of use this reminder 
defenders because they're pretty much they're quick and you know it's easy to remember obviously and then you can also have like these long tomes where they obviously tell you like these deeper more nuanced truths like why why is there a why does there have to be a kind of uh i, I guess why does it have to be dichotomous why can't we all get along yeah I don't right know. uh i mean <laughs> that, that's precisely it i mean and the uh the analytic continental divide has always struck me the wrong way because i'm really a- attracted to sort of uh big idea uh insight but I, I mean i have a real appreciation for argument and uh and clarity and brevity uh which uh is not a hallmark of mo- most continental philosophy uh even nietzsche's aphorisms are embedded in long books uh usually right uh so yeah why not both and and i i think uh that that philosophy as uh an academic discipline is is really heading in that direction Uh, the 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 distinction isn't quite as stark as it was 20 years ago Uh, but but right uh so why not both and Right. Because and going back to you, right, I know like you love stuff like this, right? Like when you love like motivational stuff that you could just like kind of think of on the fly. If let's say you wake up in the morning and you need something to get through the day, you're obviously not going to pick up, a, you know, Heigl or whatever, some big book to kind of read through. Right. You're going to pick up something like this. No, I'm very partial to Hegelian yeah. dialect. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I just thought that was interesting how you're like, you're not going to pick up. Heigl. I'm like, okay. Um, well, the thing is, um, I'm very partial to poetry. Yeah. Uh, to me, poetry is like is like music. Um, you can have a sort of a, a subjective sort of interpretation of poetry, or when you write poetry, there are things that you can say that have several different meanings, and it's a very sort of creative outlet to mm, express yourself and also to sort of interpret. Like that's what I like about uh, poetry. That there, you can always take maybe five different angles on what is what is the poet here trying to convey and it's interesting because for me it becomes like a not like a thought experiment but like a little game trying to figure out what did mm-hmm. the author mean and then simultaneously I'm, I'm wrestling with what they're trying to convey and it makes me think too so it's kind of fun right, right. like that um also certain concepts um maybe you know because you Again, you get stuck in the automaticity of life sometimes. Yeah, you, you forget certain things that are obvious or not obvious, but it's uh, how should I put this? Like, like the mo- back to the moment, right? right. Uh, maybe for some reason I haven't thought about that recently. Right. I, like, I know about it and I just haven't revisited that. Right. And I'm reading this book and it's it's putting me back in that sort of headspace. Right, right. And I, I, I like that because it's uh, poetry. Again, there's that wrestling with what's being conveyed so it makes it like fun to um think about instead of you're being told something right there's there's an extra element an extra layer of um thinking about what's what's being conveyed right right although uh, you can argue that that's what you do anyway if, if you're reading and trying to understand what you're reading but um 
that's my feeling, at least, you know, to answer your question. Right, right. Yeah. And even just thinking about it, like in terms of my work, you know, obviously psychologically, you know, people tend to hate like platitudes, right? So if you go see a therapist and, you know, they say something like, well, you know, like this is not a poem, obviously, but let's say they say something, well, you know, you can't love anybody else until you love yourself, right? So that's a platitude. Um, another one could be something like, well, you know, uh, kind of a physical well being is, you know, based on spiritual or emotional well being. And people hate that stuff, right? So, but the thing is, like, <laughs> right, but the thing is, but again, going back into the end of political territory, I wonder why can't the two get into it or can like exist together? Because if you kind of think about it, right, in some way, those sort of platitudes are true, right, to like a great extent. So I think maybe the problem is that like, when we're talking about like the divide is that people sort of leave it in terms of these aphorisms, right? Where they'll give you like, you know, Nietzsche, um, you know, what doesn't kill you, make you stronger. Okay, bye. Right. And they kind of leave it there instead of like helping you kind of develop that idea further and saying like, okay, but how do we know that? Right. How do I know that any of this is true? You're just telling me something like that some other therapist or psychiatrist or philosopher would have told me. Mm -hmm. So what I love about this bill is that it seems like you kind of molded the two together where you took these, um, I guess, I mean, these sort of like aphorisms and platitudes, but you also, you found the kind of middle ground, I think, between, you know, let's say poetry and philosophy, where you kind of melded or molded the two together and you could kind of, let me see. So it's like, this one is a tough one to explain. They kind of help you take it to that point, right? It's like, it's not, even though it's, a, it's not like an aphorism in the sense that the purpose of it is to make you think where, I mean, I guess it's the point of an aphorism too, but I guess the distinction there is that aphorisms seem more like directives, whereas like your poetry and obviously you know, kind of the words in the book, um, it seems like they're more so like thought experiments. Would you kind of characterize it as that? Yeah, no, I appreciate that description. And, and uh, uh, coming out of what Alan had said as well, uh, th there is sort of the, 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 the writer's intention and then there's a, a meta intention, right? So uh, part of them that what I would call the meta intention is to, uh, uh, to uh, wake up the, uh, the reader, or maybe uh, that sounds too grandiose, but just to, uh, uh, to key the reader or to provoke the reader uh, to how, would, how does this apply uh, to me, right? How do I understand this and, and how does it apply to me? If it does, right? Uh, and, and so the idea is hopefully to sort of generate an insight, uh, right? Kind of a quick realization uh, because when, uh, like what uh, Leon was saying, the problem with platitudes is if, if you've heard them before, uh, they, they don't do anything for you, right? The first time that you hear any platitude, it's, it's profound. Uh, and the reason it's a, a platitude and sticks around is because it does harbor some truth and some profundity to it. Uh, so uh, some of what uh, I, I do uh, in, in the poetry is, is taking some phrases that may have been uh, heard before and, and twisting them in a different way, or hopefully in some cases, coming up with a new turn of phrase that's just meant to, to generate an insight uh, that uh, you might not get in, in reading uh, a long and winding argument. Uh, that, that doesn't always, you know, I mean, that has certainly its place and its importance, uh, but uh, it, it doesn't deliver the goods uh, as quickly as sometimes we need it. Sometimes you need a, a quick espresso, uh, you know, instead of whatever the long and winding uh, beverage equivalent of that is. I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you say that because I had, a, I had this feeling, I wouldn't quite describe it as this, but it was kind of like reading some of the stanzas felt like reading Zen koans. Mm -hmm. Like there were points when, um... by the way, that's his other book. 
I'm aware. I'm aware. I'm aware. And it felt like, uh, how should I say this? Like my mind stopped. It was like, kind of like, uh, what's the sound of one hand clapping, <laughs> right? And then all of a sudden, that, you know, depending how you interpret that, usually your mind sort of stops. But the insight is like that uh, you kind of um, pay attention to silence. Mm -hmm. That's actually one interpretation. Somebody else might say something different about that. But yeah, I had that feeling like there are points I would just stop after reading some of the stanzas here. And it's interesting, like that you did that on purpose, uh, it seems. Yeah. I mean, if it happened once or twice, that's great. I succeeded. Right. I mean, it gets back to my my uh, analogy to, to photographs. I don't expect that that every uh, the poems are, are, are very short, uh, just to t- tell the, the listener uh, a couple of lines, two, three, four lines at a time. And so you had mentioned like Zen koans. I mean, there are, some of them are quite as short as that. Uh, and it, it's influenced by uh, by Taoism and, and by haiku, although it doesn't follow any kind of uh, necessary uh, syllable structure the way that that haiku does. Uh, and and yeah, my, my, my hope is that uh, it, it causes a pause uh, and, and consideration, although, you know, different ones may strike different readers. And uh, that, that's part of the interesting thing. It's part of the interesting thing uh, with what you guys do with this, uh, this podcast, uh, you, you give it your all every time that you record it and you don't really know which podcast is going to, uh, generate lots of, uh, mm-hmm. listens and responses and, and, and that kind of thing, right. It's, it's a bit of a mystery, uh, an experiment, what's going to stick. Uh, mm-hmm. and even the ones that don't generate a lot of, uh, response or comment as this one might not uh, are still worth doing uh, and that, that's kind of how I felt about the the, the poetry I enjoyed doing it uh, for myself uh, and uh, the hope was that at least some of it uh, could strike a chord with some people uh, so I can consider it a tremendous success if it uh, struck a chord with you know, more than one person. <laughs> okay. Okay. We, I have to talk to you about this. So yeah. Alan and I have this debate all the time about like what really matters. So I'm on the other end, right? I'm like, no, no, no. We need to get the clicks. We need to get the views. We need results. Yeah. We need results, right? I'm really results oriented because for me, I'm like, no, no, no. If we don't get the results, it doesn't matter. Right. Very black and white. Alan in his mind says kind of like, he gives me your perspective, right? He tells me, no, no, no. He's like the effort and the journey is itself is worth it. Right. So hold on. Wait, wait, wait. Can I just ask Bill? Okay. So Bill, how do you get to that point because i still can't figure out why how, <laughs> how i could get to the point where the results aren't the only thing uh, that matter okay. uh-huh. uh with a lot of pain and suffering that's how you yeah, get yeah right, point, right? Yeah. i mean uh-huh. <laughs> uh it, i mean really uh I, and and it is it, it is tempting uh because i, I told myself in, in writing the book uh, I, I had sort of a, a mantra that I had developed for myself that I, that was going to uh, kind of persuade me to do this, to take the chance and, and to do the writing. Uh, and I set the, uh, the bar of success very low, uh, that I was going to consider this a success uh, if it were published, and I didn't have to pay somebody to publish it, and if somebody outside of my own house liked it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to me, that makes this uh, a real success. Now, now that it's been published, of course, I feel like, well, I didn't have to pay for it to be published. I'd like to sell a bunch of copies so that the publisher 
feels like they got a good deal in publishing it uh, and they don't end up in the hole and maybe they want to work with me again, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Uh, mm-hmm. So it, it's tempting. Uh, what was, was simply fulfilling for the sake of uh, its own doing then becomes, uh, well, maybe there is some other criterion to, to, uh, to judge it by. But I, I can tell you that, that in the writing and in the process, more so than anything else I've ever done. I've, I've considered a, a, it a success uh, simply because I enjoyed doing it. Uh, and you know that, that's kind of a, a meta success because I feel successful in having adopted that attitude about success. Right. Uh, and it, you know, like I said, it, it, come, it, it only came at the, uh, the end of a lot of pain and, and suffering with uh, lots of other uh, work that I've done where quite clearly it had to be judged the success based on uh, how well received it was, how many copies sold, that, that kind of thing. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping I'm, I'm more and more at the point in life uh, where I, d- I don't have to feel like I, I wanna judge success that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, I, I totally agree with that, right? I mean, there's, there's a, how should I put this? there's a different sort of quality um, that you operate from or a difference. So imagine that you were dependent on success. You, you need this outcome to occur. Right. I need this. I need this to happen um, in order to feel okay or in order for this to feel like it's successful. Um, then that found that you're acting from a plate, like whenever, whatever you're creating has a sort of filter or a layer over it of of that sort of, uh, if you want to describe it as energy, that sort of, it's just coloring your actions. Right. But I imagine, you know, and I, I feel this way some percentage of the time, I'm not perfect with this, but I try as much as possible to remove that, those filters and just sort of operate from a place of like, is, is this helping anyone? Does this do anything for anyone? If this helps even one person, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. If uh, hopefully this causes some kind of a ripple effect, and I'll have some faith on on that, and and that just makes me feel like good. If I'm concentrating on, oh, I need uh, money, or uh, I need this to make money, I need this to do this and that. Um, I feel like I wouldn't be operating as authentically as as I would, you know, trying to legitimately help somebody. Right. So yeah, yeah. But I think your your perspective has a lot of value too because you know, if you, if you want to get something to a lot of different people, you want to uh, market it a certain way, or you need to, or you need to understand how certain things work in order to get it to those people, then it can't be all about the integrity of uh, operating authentically. Uh, or maybe it's authentic to try to learn marketing, right? Maybe, maybe I'm well, it's definitely authentic to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right? So there you go. Yeah, yeah and uh, I guess... When, when you guys describe it that way, too, it, it makes me think about... Uh, I mean, a lot of people really don't like uh, poetry uh, because they've had bad experiences with it uh, in school, and I don't know what the hell this means, and this is yeah, this okay. old flowery stuff, etc. And so, I'm one of them. Yeah, sure. And But... Leon, you love song lyrics, right? right. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- that's that's where poetry really comes in for uh, most people, I think, is they get it a- yeah. outside of works of poetry, like in song lyrics. And so uh, as you guys were, were 
doing the sort of uh, yin yang of success there, right? And I want to <laughs> say both ends, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think about uh, what it means for a band or a, a musical artist to do things on their own terms, right? And yes, they, they want to have success, right? Uh, but uh, they, they want to do it on their own terms, right? I mean, the, the, the right. ones we're most likely to, uh, uh, to, to really admire and appreciate that kind of thing. And of right. course, the temptation is always there, though, that once they, once they have done it on their own terms and succeeded, uh, that they like the success too much. Uh, and so then they end up, whatever, selling out or tailoring what they do uh, to more of a mass audience rather than to the, uh, the fans uh, who initially were there with them appreciating what they did very authentically. So, yeah, I mean, yeah if, if you don't, if nobody's listening and you're a musical artist, that, that's no good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you, you don't want to end up doing what you do in a way that is not true to your original vision either. Yeah. Right. And so. I think a gr- I think a great example of that is the band Rainbow. So I, I'm not really sure how many like listeners of ours would actually know them because they were like they existed a long time ago, right? Um, so just to kind of give everybody a background, so the band Rainbow was founded by Richie Blackmore of Deep Purple. And so obviously Richie Blackmore is a legendary guitar guitarist, right? He's pretty much a hall of famer, right? One of the best guitarists literally in history. So Richie Blackmore brought it, brought in Ronnie James Dio, right? So obviously you have like, you know, this great combination. And so they told great stories, right? So Stargazer, like literally about just the, yeah. So Bill knows, right? So Stargazer literally about like this guy who's like, you know, um, what was the story about? It was like uh, some mythical tale where he was essentially trying to like uh, climb up some sort of magical mountain or whatever it was to like get up to see this like uh, some sort of mythical creature. I don't remember exactly who it was. Damn, that kind of sucks that I don't uh, I forgot. But whatever. But the point is like, so a lot of Rainbow songs were like this, right? So essentially with Dio, what he writes about is like these magical kind of themes where it's like about the hero's journey. And eventually, you know, the hero kind of learns something from it. And then he comes back, you know, a la Joseph Campbell. And so finally they had this moment in the band where, you know, Richie Blackmore is like, yo, I don't want to do this anymore. So even though they were selling really well in Europe, they were like super popular in Germany and I think the UK, uh, they weren't doing anything in America. And so essentially Richie Blackmore is like, yo, I want to like scrap the whole kind of idea. And I, I think he brought in Graham Bonnet at the time. So he wanted to scrap the idea. He's like, I want to do something that's more kind of pop and mainstream. And Ronnie didn't like that. Ronnie was like, I'm not doing that. That's not who I am. And so they tried to get Ronnie to film, not film, uh, to record the song, Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow? And so it's like this, like, you know, poppy kind of like love ballad and he's like i'm not doing that that's just not who i am and then so i guess blackmore was like yeah forget it if you don't want to do it i'll go bring in somebody else even though they still never recorded the song like there's a live version with grand bonnet but never recorded but so it was so interesting because you took this band right that had such great substance because if you had so the thing is like first of all dio could write songs on his own he doesn't need richie blackmore but the thing is the fact that like they had like this this combination of like great minds writing music together it was amazing right even though obviously not so appreciated in the US. But then, man, honestly, and look, I love Rainbow and all of its kind of formations. But the thing is, you could tell that during the later years with Graham Bonnet and Jolyn Turner and even uh, Dougie White, it wasn't the same, man. It just wasn't the same. Like it was pure pop, right? They would write like love songs like Street of Dreams, uh, Since You've Been Gone. And look, Since You've Been Gone is still used on commercials, right? You could see it on the Honda commercial or whatever, right? <laughs> and then look, I guess Richie got what he wanted, right? In that sense, because he got the popularity. But I guess, you know, I, I want to hear both of your perspectives on this i guess is it worth sacrificing authenticity for popularity 
What do you think, Bill? Oh, I well, I would say certainly not, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 it's usually counterproductive. Uh, so uh, yeah, and that, I mean that that that's that's a fine example with, with Rainbow. I mean, you, you know, there are any number of uh, bands that we we can uh, look about look at, and some of them have succeeded when they've turned uh, in a popular direction, and and some have not. Uh, I mean, the, the whole we we could do a whole podcast on uh, on Rainbow and what what happened. I mean, Richie Blackmore, oddly enough, as you knew, Leon is like doing uh medieval music or something now right he's totally doing this obscure stuff really only right. <laughs> he uh values it and he won't do anything anything else so he went totally in the other direction i don't know if he learned a lesson or or, or what but uh anyway yeah yeah and what's so great is that like with ronnie obviously he became popular with his own sound so like he obviously he kept so ronnie from dio and ronnie from rainbow is literally the same all throughout you honestly if you didn't know like who the other bandmates were you probably wouldn't even be able to tell the difference like between the different bands you if you listen to like let's say uh like stargazer right you'd be like oh that sounds like something on the dio album yeah Mm -hmm. yeah no authenticity is that's the answer for me yeah right uh I, I value, though, um, see, I try to understand somebody's perspective who's operating from, oh, I'd like this to be more poppy or uh, I'd like to reach more people or, or something like that. I, I could I could get it. And also a lot of those people tend to be very like Leon, like uh, very results oriented. Right. Right. And it doesn't mean that you can't be authentic and results oriented, too. So uh, obviously uh, th- that's why I like being in a team, because I, I think. Uh, somebody contributes, you know, the emergent that comes from us working together is good. Maybe, maybe we balance each other out, for example. It doesn't work like that in every uh, team or, or partnership or, or something like that. But um, I, I think that's good. I don't, I don't think you have, you know, you uh, somebody has to be um, enlightened uh, all the time. Right. You know, M- maybe, you, you know, you go. Practical too. I mean, you could be, I mean, practicality, I'm sure you could still be operating from an authentic place and be practical, Right. but uh, I don't know. There's probably something I'm, I feel like I have a blind spot, for example, even if I, I think I'm being uh, authentic and I'm not trying to uh, get these results and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Maybe there's just something I have a blind spot to that's, uh, that's also valuable that I'm just not in alignment with and i could i could learn from right right right? so that that's how i take it but otherwise yeah i'd like to operate from an authentic space i feel uh, people respond to authenticity as well and uh, you feel better i i i feel good when i know that i'm not doing anything that's um foreign to me right in terms of intentions so i don't know yeah. And that's what I loved so much about Dio's autobiography, where it's like it literally was this journey, you know, kind of much like his music, obviously. And it went from, you know, kind of like these roots right there were just like, you know, just this regular kid from upstate New York. And then essentially he always stayed true to his voice, man. Like the guy always stayed true to what he wanted to do. He never like, you know, quote unquote, sold out. And then you have this pinnacle at the end of the book where he finally makes it to Madison Square Garden in 1986, literally on his own terms. So I know. know Bill- do you know what I had? I. <laughs> I, I have a story connected with that very show. I mean, uh, maybe we're going too far off topic, but uh, <laughs> the the the, uh, the book uh, Dio's memoir ends with uh, his show at uh, Madison Square Garden. Uh, I was supposed to go to that show, 
And uh, a friend of mine uh, and I uh, went to the garden to buy the tickets on the day that they went on sale. Right. Uh, and uh, we got conned uh, from a, a, a guy who was a scalper. It wasn't even a scalper. He was just con- he just conned us. He took our money, and we didn't get we didn't get wow. tickets. Wow. Uh, so I learned a lesson. Uh, it wasn't on the day of the show. You know, this was it was months before. But we had a lot of money, especially for for young kids. That was mm-hmm. what eighty six. So I would have been sixteen or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a couple hundred dollars, I think, that wow. we got taken for because we were buying uh, tickets for a bunch of friends and uh, ended wow. up, uh, uh, conned. But uh, I, I guess I wasn't supposed to be at that show. I had seen him uh, on the, uh, it was probably the same tour. I think that was the Sacred Heart tour. I had seen him uh, a couple of months earlier back in the fall uh, when he had played Nassau Coliseum. Uh, but but anyway, well, to kind of link in with the uh, the other discussion about about authenticity and such, one of the things that I, I kind of like is when you take something that's not at all popular uh, and try to popularize it, because I think that then what you're sort of doing uh, is against uh, is against the grain and is authentic. There's a kind of faux authenticity, I think, or faux authenticity, uh, if in uh, philosophy that uh, just tries to be obscure for the sake of being obscure or overly rigorous for the sake of being impenetrable. Uh, you know, I, I, I see plenty of that in, in the academic world. And uh, so you had kindly mentioned in the, uh, the introduction that I had sort of uh, first gotten a, a break by uh, these philosophy and pop culture uh, genre of books, and and I got a lot of flack for that uh, when I first did it from people in the academic uh, setting that I was. Oh cheapening. God! Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Lot, lots of it. I don't. I, occasionally, I still do, but not not as much anymore. But that yeah. I was cheapening philosophy, and philosophy is meant to be rigorous. And it's really not supposed to be for everybody. And, uh, oh wow! But but I, I I loved getting the you know the flack you know, on, on a certain level. Uh, but but to me that was the the idea that you know if you can take something that is uh, too often obscure uh, and and make a presentable version uh, or not a presentable version but a more accessible version of it uh, right. then then good on you uh, and, and that's kind of what uh, I'm trying to do with this uh, this poetry book too is that. Uh, it, you know, not everybody may like or appreciate or, or fully grasp or understand every poem in there, but it's it's no knock on the reader's intellect if they don't get it. Uh, it's not like you're not a poetry aficionado, you're not a member of the club, you're not smart enough or anything like that. Uh, you just might not like it or might not think it says anything valuable. Uh, it's a knock on me, uh, the poet in that case, and not on you uh, the reader. And I think, you know, too much poetry has been locked away uh, in inaccessible forms and, and language for too long. And I think people have a, a yearning for poetry and they'll find it in other places. If you don't give them poetry that's accessible, they'll find it in, in lyrics where rightly it is uh, and in other places. Uh, and one of the people I took inspiration with uh, or from uh, w- with this is 
the poet Rupi Kaur. I don't know if you guys. Know yes, absolutely. That. I actually, I actually thought of her when I was reading your book. Yeah. 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 And she's gotten a lot of flack as, oh, she's a terrible poet. Mm -hmm. She's a hack, all oh. those things, you know, from, from people who would, you know, she's, she's sold millions and millions of books. And, and listen, the poet, not all of her poetry, I think, is, very, is all good. Uh, not all of it speaks to me, uh, but some of it does. Uh, and, and, you know, if I go through a whole book of hers uh, and, and one or two poems speak to me, that's great. Uh, you know, and, you know, for some people, every poem of hers speaks to them. I mean, you know, she has a, a particular audience, it seems to speak more to women and younger women uh, who, whose experience uh, she resonates with uh, rather than a middle-aged guy like me. Uh, great, fantastic, you know, good on poetry, good on her, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, you know, if, if <laughs> you know, I don't think she did anything inauthentic for sure. It's totally authentic. She wasn't trying to be you know, a sellout or whatever. Not everybody could write poetry the way that she does and, and, and have it be authentic. And, you know, she gets a lot of undeserved guff uh, for what, what she's done, you know. Uh, so the success and, and the authenticity can go hand in hand and they don't have to. I have no delusions uh, that I'm, I'm going to have Rupi Kaur success with this <laughs> book. And I, and, I, and I, you know, thankfully I didn't set that as my, Mm -hmm. uh, my bar or the level that I would have to talking with you guys right now and having it published uh, is, is, you know, has met my bar of success. Well, I love that. And, you know, just to give a quick shout out to our guy, Michael Shermer, Shermer always says the same, well, something very similar, not exactly the same thing, where he'll say, look, there's no sort of dichotomy between being a good writer and writing clearly and then being an academic, right? He's like the two go hand in hand. So he'll say something like, well, I don't understand, you know, why kind of like, you know, in pop, not maybe in pop culture, not, no, I'm wrong. In academia, people would say, well, you can either have one or the other, right? You can have like, you know, popular fiction, um, popular nonfiction, or you can have like these academic tomes. He's like, no, no, it doesn't work that way he's like popular because you know he has like a great podcast and he has like all of these different guests on who write for the public and he's like yeah, yeah yeah it's not that they dumb down the material he's like this is the material they just write in a clear way that's how academics are supposed to write so i guess i wonder uh i guess from your perspective bill do you feel like maybe there's like a threat or a sense of a threat from a lot of academics who maybe don't write so clearly and there's a bit of a jealousy there uh, first off, love Michael Shermer. Good for yep. you. Uh, you guys have had him on, right? Yeah, we had him yeah. on in in April. Told you, you've way outclassed having me as your first guest on <laughs> Michael Shermer. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, there is some of that. There is some sort of uh, sour grapes uh, that uh, this is something. I mean, uh, to be fair to uh, my, my fellow academics, uh, we're, we're trained to write in, in a way uh, that that is not accessible, uh, and you know there there comes along with that a certain snobbery, mm -hmm. uh, at least for some people. That oh, you know, people uh, there's only a small handful of people who can understand you know what I'm writing and saying and that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, I mean, Shermer is of course right and. Uh, you know, he, he typically does have guests on, on his podcast who, who meet that, uh, that, uh, that bar of, of clarity and, and 
having something valuable to say as well. I mean, Steven Pinker is, is probably mm -hmm. the, the hallmark uh, of that. And, you know, he's written books about the nature of writing right. as well. Uh, so you, both and let's go back to that. You, you can have both and uh, so why not try for it? Yeah, but again, going back to that sense of threat, it does really seem like they feel like, oh, you know, uh, if we're sort of in this field and we're, you know, the experts, right? Like, why are we getting the public involved, right? Like, why do other people get to be experts too? Yeah, there is a lingering residue of that. I, I think, you know, it, 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 there's less than, than there, there was 20 years ago, going back further than that. I, I think people see more and more of the value. There's there's more and more value, particularly in, in philosophy, recognition of, of what it's to me a sort of an odd name, public philosophy. To mm -hmm. me, all, all philosophy <laughs> should be if, if you're not saying something that the public could or could appreciate why you're saying it. Uh, and, and for the most part, if you're not writing in a way that someone uh, in the educated public could read, uh, right. you're not writing it well, I don't think. Uh, and if you're not saying something that you couldn't at least explain to even the non-educated public uh, in a way that they could you know, appreciate, then I'm really not sure what, what you're doing. I mean, there probably are exceptions to, to what I'm saying that it could easily be uh, refuted with. But for the most part, uh, philosophy and, and, and really other fields of study as well should be the kind of thing that can be presented to the public. Public philosophy should be sort of an oxymoron. It started with Socrates out in the streets doing it in public. Uh, that's what it, it should fundamentally be. Yeah, we we had a philosopher on. Her name is Ashley Bohr, and so she had a great conception of what it actually means to like you know philosophize philosophize in academic jargon. So she's like, look, man, academic jargon and like you know philosophical jargon essentially, it's it's a shorthand, right? So it's a shorthand of communicating with fellow philosophers, and that makes a ton of sense, right? Because like when you know you're in a conference or whatever, you just want to you know kind of expend as much or as little energy as possible, right? That's the point. But if you're writing for people, right? If you want to write for a general audience, why would you use jargon or at the very least why would you not explain it i mean unless obviously you want to like put yourself up, and this is my words not hers um so unless you want to put yourself up on some pedestal and make it seem as though obviously like you know you have like a some esoteric knowledge that other people aren't worthy of yeah well uh people these days right they they still do read uh plato socrates yeah. uh nietzsche kierkegaard and so on um sartre and um, they still do, but I think it's important to come out with new works to try to distill. Um, maybe, actually, sometimes you, you have new insights as well. Right. Sometimes you integrate different philosophies and come out with a different sort of an emergent and you want right, right. to uh, convey that also to the public. So, I mean, I think it's important to constantly be coming out with new works, even if um, certain things have been expressed before. Uh, and, you know, in that sort of uh, academic jargony sort of way. Yeah. Um, oh, and so, yeah, it's valuable. I mean, I, I think in terms of, uh, for example, somebody having an unbreakable philosophy mm -hmm. or like, for example, um, I know like for, uh, we had him on the guest, um, uh, Maximilian, not Maximilian, I'm sorry, uh, Pil uh, Piliucci. 
Oh, Massimo. Massimo. I'm yeah. so sorry. That's, That's apologies to Massimo. All right. So, for example, uh, he values uh, Stoic philosophy, and I, I've seen him get into uh, arguments right. uh, over it, and sort of, and and I think it's great to um, get really into it, and then try to argue one philosophy against another philosophy. I still, it does come back to both and 100%. Right. Um, that's, that's how I feel. But um, I, there's, yeah, there's probably a value to arguing these different philosophies and trying to get at the, at the core of, you know, what makes uh, the place you're coming from um, so valuable. And right. then you start to, uh, m- maybe you add something there. And it's interesting, you know, from that academic jargony sort of perspective. Yeah. But again, you want to convey this to people this way they they understand and they get the insights so yeah that's right the most and, important. and it's like we want to make i think philosophy important and i obviously i want to give a shout out to uh, my friend sky cleary who's coming out with the book on simone de beauvoir called how to be authentic and so what she does which i really appreciated in the book is so simone de beauvoir's philosophy tends to be a little bit obscure and it's not that easy to understand so what she does is she not only puts it like in layman's terms which is really great and what you want but she takes modern examples so she'll take stuff from pop culture like obviously bill you do you kind of focus on and then she'll use personal examples and so obviously Simone de Beauvoir did this as well. But the point is when you're reading the kind of philosophical uh, tome, you're looking at it and you're thinking, wow, like this can actually apply to my life. And I could kind of see how, because this makes sense to me. And so my thinking is, you, I, I don't know. I think everybody should do that. I think every philosopher who's writing books should write it with the intent of it being distributed to a general public, because going back to the idea that I mentioned, you know, just now, uh, it should be important. Like it should matter to people. I don't know. I guess, why would you just want to write for other philosophers? Most of the time they won't even read your stuff. Yeah. I, you know, it, it's a lot harder that, than it sounds, right? I mean, uh, people may have the, uh, the wrong opinion that if, if you're writing for uh, a broader audience, it, it's easier writing, but it, it, in many ways it's more difficult because right. you're, you really have to think from outside of what you already know. It's the kind of curse of knowledge where if you're an expert in something, it's very difficult to get back to sort of beginner's mind and, and realize what the proper phrasing is to get that across. Uh, you know, and there, there's also just the problem of wordiness that uh, we see in, uh, in the academic world. And it's not only in the academic world. Uh, people just sort of uh, write and, and say much more than actually needs to be said or, uh, or written to get their, their point across. And yeah. I, I very much uh, like a sort of spare aesthetic, which is what I tried to strike uh, with, with the poetry and it sort of mimics some elements of, of Taoism and, and Zen there with just trying to use as few words as possible mm-hmm. uh, to hint at an idea uh, rather than I'd rather say too little than say too much uh, oftentimes and, and particularly in poetry right I mean that, that that's the exasperation some people have <laughs> with with uh, with uh, with the poem right where it goes on and on in some flowery language and, and the point was a rather simple point and you know i mean it's the classic uh students complain well why didn't he just say that (laughs) right i mean and that's not a valid criticism of uh of you know certain particularly great uh works of of poetry if if you're reading a shakespearean sonnet and you get to the end and you say why didn't he just say that well you missed the point too because it's the beauty of the language etc but we're not all shakespeare and we shouldn't all try to be right Mm -hmm. yates or Wordsworth or, or whoever else, right? Uh, so we, we should write in the way that's natural to us. And 
for me, well, what I value in, uh, in other writers and speakers and what, what I try to do uh, in my own writing is, is to say uh, as little as possible, uh, you know, to, to put a point across the point in as uh, few words and as suggestive words uh, as I can. And then hopefully, particularly in the case of the poetry, it has the effect that, uh, uh, you know, we're discussing with, uh, with Alan in particular that, uh, you know, it, it strikes something that causes you to pause and, and, and think about it for yourself and, and hopefully maybe try to apply it for yourself. Right. Yeah, I'm happy you mentioned Yates. Actually, that uh, back to sort of the beginning of the convo when we were talking about um, the hammer striking for the the habit stanza. Mm -hmm. um, that reminded me of yeah, Yates. Uh, uh, it's not wait, sorry. Uh, don't strike while the iron is hot. Make the iron hot by striking. Something oh. like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so kind of yeah, like it's very Yates. I mean, I. I I don't want to, uh, you know, I don't know if you take that as a compliment. Is that oh, good? Oh, well, how can I okay. not? <laughs> I love that. I love that question. <laughs> yeah, what an insult. Yeah. No, 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 it's good. Uh, so, yeah, it's... it's uh, Your it regular Shakespeare, Bill. Yates, <laughs> 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 oh, my God. It reminded me. No, no joke. The the yeah. hammer strike. It just reminded me of that uh, quote while I was reading. That. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, and I really love that. Right. So I I like that. So that's what I meant by when I said like your book is sort of like a thought experiment. So not obviously like a philosophical thought experiment, but in the way that you kind of you have you're like um it's sort of what would you call it? like a catapult, right? Your book is like a catapult. So which a lot of times in philosophy you get the answers, right? So again, if you're reading like a 300, 400 page book, right, you'll eventually come across the answer somewhere down the line. Obviously, right. <laughs> So here, it's not like that. These are more like riddles, right? So in yeah. the sense of when I say thought experiment, I mean, there's like the jumping off point where now you get to, you know, kind of think about these things that honestly, how many of us really on a day to day start thinking about like, you know, literally, why am I chasing success? Uh, you know, uh, maybe some of the other themes that you have, which unfortunately don't come to mind right now. Um, so pe about people, about different philosophies, about uh, success, right? Uh, about uh uh, uh, death uh, towards, uh, towards oh propaganda that was another one that you focused on right like the things that we believe in obviously in terms of like fake news right so the idea there is that like we kind of go through the day to day and we don't think about these things and oftentimes like we don't want to read like long books about them right I mean it just it is what it is it sucks but it's yeah. True. Yeah, yeah 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 so and it's like when you read a kind of book of poetry about it right it starts to at least get you to pull back and think okay you know what maybe this is actually something I should be considering more than I already am yeah, well, I mean, people love inspirational calendars with quote a day kind of thing. Right. I mean, uh, maybe that's what I should do. Make, uh, <laughs> make this into a, <laughs> maybe I'd maybe I'd sell some that way. Uh, yeah, I, what what I do with these actually though is uh, I do I tweet them. I've tweeted the whole book, uh, <laughs> and uh, each day I tweet out uh, a couple of the, all, all the poems actually. Uh, fit in uh, in a tweet. Uh, they weren't uh, written to be that way necessarily, but that's the way it all uh, works out. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not breaking the internet right, with uh, people liking and retweeting them, but uh, you know, it feels like I'm throwing something out there into the world, and occasionally I get a like or a retweet on that. And uh, you know, you, you you could read them uh, one at a time, two or three at a time. Uh, you know keep a copy in the in the bathroom whatever, <laughs> whatever you know uh and uh if it provokes a thought i mean I, I i love and appreciate the image of the catapult that you use right i mean uh it's really meant to uh to provoke a thought really more so than uh, than give you an answer mm-hmm
Yeah, that's what I appreciated about it. So again, going back to those large philosophical tomes, which are great, right? I'm certainly not against them. But the idea is like, sometimes you don't want that. Sometimes you actually want to kind of try to think for yourself and to sort of reason for yourself and to come to a conclusion on your own. And I think that these sort of riddle-like poems, they help you get there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, honestly, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, for me, uh, also, you know what I love about this? It was... Uh, you know, so here's the book, you know, for anyone who's uh, watching right now. And um, yeah, it was it was an easy read, too, in terms of like how long it took me to read it. Mm -hmm. And this is this is going to sound uh, maybe dumb. Besides the value, well, that's the main thing. The main thing is the value I got from the book. It's, inter it's great. Uh, what I liked was the fact that I finished reading it so quickly. I felt accomplished. Mm -hmm. Does that make any sense? Yeah, of course. I, is that, is that people love short chapters yeah. and books and things mm -hmm. because yeah you feel you can read that whole uh book in in half an hour uh and have yeah. done a fine job of reading it uh and and if i've had some measure of uh of success with it maybe there are half a dozen poems in there that you'll you'll mark and maybe want to look at again right i mean that, that that's the yeah. way I, I look at it yeah uh, so so many books that i have piled up uh, I'm, I'm never going to get through, unfortunately. Uh, and, uh, so, you know, I, I abandon lots of books. I, I've given myself permission to do that uh, at a certain point in life where life's too short to read a book uh, yeah. that is a slog for me. Uh, yeah. And uh, if, if I've accomplished nothing else with this, I haven't wasted uh, people's time because you can, you can get through the whole thing in about half an hour and, and maybe you want to look at some of them again or maybe you don't and uh, hopefully you feel like it was worthwhile. Well, I love Absolutely. that. And that's a pretty great point to end it off on. So Alan, final questions for Bill before we go? Oh, yeah. Um, so if we wanted to follow you, uh, follow your work and, um, and also uh, uh, buy the books. Yeah, and also I wanted to ask uh, where, where we could uh, find the book and buy the book too. Yeah, well, I mean, the book is on Amazon and other uh, online retailers. I don't think you're going to find it piled at the front of your local Barnes & Noble, but uh, who knows? Uh, maybe with the Rupee Cow or someday I got it. Yeah, but, but an online retailers are probably your best bet for it. And thank, thanks for that. And yeah, I'm on Twitter at, at William Irwin 38 and I'm on Facebook and uh, love to, to connect with people. Uh, and uh, would love to hear from anybody uh, who takes a look at the look at the book. You can uh, find my uh, my email address uh, easily enough as well. Uh, it's right on my webpage, which you'll find if you just Google William Irwin at uh, King's College in Pennsylvania. It's my uh, my webpage through the college, and uh, you know, love to hear from people. Absolutely, wow. thank awesome. you so much for coming on, Bill. Thank hey, you. thanks for having me again, guys. It's been great. absolutely. We'll talk to you soon, man. Okay, take thanks. care. Take care, guys. All right, you too, man. All right. Yep. First of all, that was awesome. Yeah, super fun. Oh, yeah. And guys, if you want to follow us, follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram and at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Like, subscribe. Hit the bell. <laughs> That's right. And buy the book. <laughs> and guys, thanks so much for watching and see you next time.